Hello, I'm George the Third. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Fascinating. Get away from her, you bitch! I'm Batman. Do or do not. There is no Hello, everybody, and it's time for another Nerdfest podcast. This week we have Dan Watkins, Ian Mayer, Peter Johnson, and I'm John Farling. On this episode, we have a Film Before Film Blood challenge where we test ourselves on our nerdy knowledge or lack of it. We've got another question from the audience, and I have delved into my own sack of fun, which I've learned is something you should never do. It's a lesser known Lovecraft story. David Cronenberg has bought the rights to my self-sack of fun. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. We don't have Hazel with us this week. She is on her 25th straight viewing of Hamilton. Oh, yeah. I, I paused it for a couple of hours to come and talk to you guys, but I'm straight back in there when this is finished. <laughs> That's very good of you. Um, I don't think Hazel's left her sofa since midnight on the 3rd of July when it aired on Disney+. Plus. How many times have you watched, Dan? Three viewings on day one. I haven't watched it since. I've been very restrained. Do you think there's a wider audience for historical rap? You know, like if so, if Eminem did something about the Black Plague, then maybe that'd be yeah. a great concept album. I don't think there was much of an audience for Hamilton before it existed. There's video footage of Lin-Manuel Miranda at the White House in about 2009, and he says, I've written this hip-hop song about the life of Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton, and the entire room laughs at him because it's such a ridiculous <laughs> and, idea. And then he does it. And people are like, oh. Yeah. And by the end of the song, he's won them over, but the idea of it is so silly, they couldn't have thought, ah, yes, this will be a cultural phenomenon. So perhaps there is hitherto undreamt of avenues. I know Vanilla Ice is working on a four-hour magnum opus about the Lincoln assassination as we speak, so we've got (laughs) that to look forward to. I'm looking forward to Stormzy's treatises on the Great Depression. I think that should be awesome. Mm. That would actually be pretty good. Actually, yeah, that sounds pretty good now I say it. Okay, so we're on to winners. Just don't get Vanilla Ice. (laughs) I hope we're all trademarking these. We should do, yes. In case one of these appears, we'll make sure the podcast comes out before... Any announcements are made by Vanilla Ice or other rappers. Dr. Dre, he's a rapper, isn't he? Yes, he is. Well, well done, John. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so first of all, today we have our film bus or film bluffs. And Daniel, would you like to start us off? I have had one of my periodic delves into the old Star Wars expanded universe. And I've discovered three fascinating facts about the bounty hunters of Star Wars. But which of these three bounty hunting facts is a bluff? Number one, you might remember the droid L337 in Solo, whose consciousness was plugged into the Millennium Falcon. Bounty hunter droid IG-88 did something similar. His consciousness was plugged into the second Death Star. Number two, Rodian bounty hunter Greedo was famously shot by Han Solo. But after his death... His body was chopped up and fed into a droid by the Mos Eisley Cantina's barman, churning Greedo up into a tasty drink. And number three, the reptilian bounty hunter Bosk is from Trandosha, a planet of thick forests and jungles. When he wasn't bounty hunting, Bosk would travel his homeworld atop a waska, which looks exactly like a triceratops. 
Hmm. Is IG-88 the droid from The Mandalorian? That is IG-11, but it's the same make. I see. And if you look behind the bar of the Mos Eisley Cantina, you will see what looks very, very much like IG-88 heads mounted uh, behind the bar. That prop was then used as IG-88's head. So it wasn't deliberate, but that is a, a little extra Star Wars fact for you. And what would they name this cocktail shake made with Greedo? McClunky. <laughs> That's why he said it. Yeah. yeah. He was ordering a McClunky. He didn't know it was made of him. <laughs> there you go. I think that's true. One of the, the weird things that appears in those spin-off novels and things like that. The other two, I have absolutely no idea. Going around the sort of triceratopsy thing isn't too implausible. Mm-hmm. But the thing with the Star Wars universe is that things don't look like they do on Earth. Like, you don't have a horse, you've got a tauntaun. So I'm not sure you would have a Triceratops in the Star Wars universe. So I'm going to go with that as the bluff. I think it's Daniel's Star Wars Jurassic Park fan fiction. <laughs> Being plugged into the second Death Star. Yeah, sure. I can, I can definitely go with that. The robots get plugged into Death Stars all the time in Star Wars. It's absolutely <laughs> fine. Bosk riding around uh, his forest home on something very dinosaur-like. We'll see if it looks exactly like a Triceratops, but that makes sense to me. People ride things in Star Wars all the time. However, a kid's franchise endorsing cannibalism (laughs) is perhaps (laughs) the bit I'd go, yeah, maybe not. The barman serving a Greedo slushy. That's going to be my bluff, I'd say. One, what's this delicious drink? Well, he was a regular. <laughs> but he had a bit, of a bit of an argument. We go to very different bars, Ian, if you don't think that's something entirely within the realms of possibility. Perhaps we do. But we're quite used to eating other species. You know, yeah. cows, um, yeah, lambs not, and things. Not one we've previously had a conversation with. <laughs> yeah. Not one that wears clothes. As they say in the restaurant at the end of the universe, mm. I don't like to eat something I've been introduced to. Exactly. I'm going for um, the Greedo smoothie as being the bluff. For the sake of diversity, I shall go for IG-88. Well, I can reveal that one of you is correct. <laughs> By the miracle of mathematics. <laughs> the one of you that is correct is John. Yes. Sadly, no Triceratops in Star Wars. Awaska is actually the name of the moon of Trandosha. IG-88 did upload his consciousness between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi to a flash drive, which was plugged into the Death Star. And during the final battle in Return of the Jedi, he went along with the Empire, but as soon as the Rebels were beaten, he was going to shoot down all the Imperial ships as well and kick off a droid revolution. It's bad, it's bad luck, isn't it? So I'm, I'm dying, but I'll upload my consciousness to something so I will continue and then to upload something that is almost immediately blowing up itself. Yeah, very bad luck. And (laughs) almost as bad luck as Greedo, um, (laughs) who was turned into a smoothie. Uh, According to an old Expanded Universe story, the cantina barman wanted to make a drink that would make him famous across the galaxy, and he thought that chopping up Greedo's body and churning him up Mm -hmm. into a drink would do the trick. On that note, shall I go next? I have inappropriate children's toys. Of course you do. Yeah, but what are your questions? (laughs) (laughs) And trust me, it was difficult getting this down to three, but I have been searching (laughs) the world of inappropriate children's toys, and I have some delightful ones. I'm never going to Google that. One of which is made up. (laughs) Number one is Barbie's Sister Skipper, and particularly the Barbie's Sister Skipper All Grown Up doll. 
This is a doll of Barbie's sister who, when you turn her arm, she grows up. By which we mean her breasts grow and her waist gets smaller as she transitions from a girl into a woman. No. Wow. Number two is Kiddie Russian Roulette. (laughs) A toy plastic gun that children take in turns to put to the side of their head and fire and hope that the toy bullet does not come out and and finish them off. Was that a Deer Hunter licensed product? Sadly, no. <laughs> I, I wish I wish it was. And finally is the uh, the Sid James speaking mask. Uh, this is a plastic mask of Sid James that a children could wear, and it had a button on the back that you could push that would say things like ah, 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 and four <laughs> and did other you such say, Sid James catchphrases. Did you say our children? <laughs> it was, uh, at, presumably, <laughs> so at is, other children. Is this mask haunted by Sid James? <laughs> 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 if they ever need to reboot the mask no it's, it's just a plastic mask of sid james with a button on the side that so you push what year do you claim this sid james mask was made <laughs> um 1975 <laughs> <laughs> so how did they do speech technology in 1975 john they had a little whatever the previous thing to his chip is <laughs> They, at one point, they did actually have like little tiny plastic records that spun, and they did it, it that way. It wasn't a little tiny plastic record, no, that, 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 that would be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't know. There was a wire coming from the back of the mask. So it was something that you put in your pocket that would you would push, and it would do the catchphrases. Yeah, that's true. Sheriff Woody is from the 50s. But that's like a pull string tie. And I, I seem to recall having like a pull string tie that was meant to speak. Yeah, just didn't it have Sid James's face on it. It didn't have Sid James's face <laughs> on it. And to be honest, it was it, you couldn't say what it was saying. It sounded like something was being tortured in a distant mm-hmm. dimension. But um, it was meant to be a voice. I mean, that yep. that does seem like obvious crap. But if that was the case, then the others would be true. And I find that hard to believe. <laughs> that's horrifying. <laughs> Wow, what a horrifying set of cultural <laughs> artefacts you have brought us today, John. Oh man, your internet search history must be <laughs> must be remarkable for many reasons. I mean, I have to go for the Sid James mask. It's actually the only one I'd like to own, but <laughs> yeah. it is. Um, I I just I can't imagine it working. Sadly, the first one, appalling though it sounds feels like something that could exist mm-hmm. and like yep. russian russian roulette for kids yeah i could see that eh, horrible though it sounds i have to go with mm-hmm. um <laughs> i have to go with the haunted mask of st james <laughs> as being the bluff i know that barbie did have a sister called skipper from knowledge mm. of my sister when she used to collect barbies and i can very well imagine that something as weird and awful as that could be true Kitty Russian Roulette, the Carry On films. He never really made family films. I mean, the Carry On films are all PG now, so they were, right. you know. Okay. Yeah. Sid James lives on in mask form. I, Ooh, I think I'm yeah. going to have to pick Sid James. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you too. Sid James. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that you are all correct. The Sid James mask <laughs> does, does not exist. Um, it's the one that I would most like to own of the three. I would, I would be delighted to be the possessor of such a item, but I would have to create it if I did. The Skipper Grows Up doll was brought to market 
in the 80s, and the man responsible for introducing that later went on to be the head of Sega America, responsible for introducing the Mega Drive to the West. There's a little bit of a, an extra bonus fact for you there. Mm-hmm. Did he do a Sonic all grown up? He didn't know. If you twist Sonic's arms to see what happens, he he punches you to the moon. <laughs> and yes, the Russian roulette toy is a real Japanese toy. It's a pink gun. Uh, and when you put it to your head and pull the trigger, if you're unlucky, Hippo's feet come out of the barrel <laughs> and hit you in the forehead. Wow. Splendid. Who wouldn't want that? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I have a buffer bluff. Good. That's kind of the aim of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, I have a buffer bluff regarding uh, jobs that famous actors have had before they became famous actors. So, everyone knows Harrison Ford was a carpenter. Sean Connery had a milk round. Um, but he's three lesser known ones. So, Kate McKinnon, the Saturday Night Live uh, regular comedian, impressionist actress. Uh, she was Holtzman in the Ghostbusters reboot. Before she was on Saturday Night Live, she ghost wrote adult fiction novels. Uh, no, uh, sorry, that's completely wrong. She ghost wrote young adult fiction novels, <laughs> which is a very different <laughs> Slightly thing. Slightly different. So, like Hunger, Hunger Gamesy stuff, that kind of thing. Johnny Depp, before he was an actor, he used to be a ballpoint pen salesman until Nicolas Cage convinced him to try acting. Has anyone tried to convince Nicolas Cage to try acting? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, uh, Steve Buscemi. Now, everyone knows he was a firefighter, mm-hmm. uh, but before he was a firefighter, he used to work in an enameling factory. His father was a senior partner in a New Jersey enameling factory. He worked there as a student, and he worked there after finishing his studies. And his father was disappointed when he went on to firefighting. He was acting at all times in these two jobs. So which one of these is the bluff? Why would Kate McKinnon write under a pen name? So was it like a a famous person who didn't write their own young adult novels? It was, they were ghost-written young adult novels, so we don't Mm. know which uh, novels. But it uh, has recently come up. Hunger Games. Um, Like, technically, yes. Oh, it's probably Mm. one of the lesser-known series. Yeah, a lot of those series that had dozens and dozens of books were all given the same author name, but they were all ghost written mm-hmm. uh not that i knew that at the time for the ones that i used to read but i like the idea of a ghostbuster ghost writing <laughs> that's quite nice so i'm willing to believe that one john with your extensive cage knowledge did he convince johnny depp to go into acting i know that jackie earl haley and johnny depp both went to a nightmare on street auditions johnny depp was just going to support jackie earl haley who later became Rorschach many years later. And later became Freddy many, Freddy many years later. Yes, actually played yeah. Freddy Krueger, yeah. And Depp got the part that he wasn't even auditioning, but I don't know whether he would have known Nick Cage at this point. They were all kind of hanging around the same time, so it's plausible, but my... I mean, Johnny Depp was on 21 Jump Street from a very young age. So only a teenager when he was in 21 Jump Street or early 20s. So is that enough time to build a career... As the Midwest's premier ballpoint salesman, which I believe is the exact term Ian used. I can imagine him on the set of A Nightmare on Elm Street trying to hawk ballpoint pens in case this new fangled acting career didn't take off. I can give you more ballpoint pen facts if you so wish. Mm, no, thank you. Okay. <laughs> go, go on, give us, give us the details. Um, he was a phone salesman. He was a phone salesman of ballpoint pens. And it's where he says he honed his craft of acting. Mm. You know, like, string them along to get them to try and buy, like, a gross of ballpoint pens. The Steve Buscemi story, I'm not... In fact, I don't think I've heard any of these stories, so I'm at a complete loss. 
the Bushimi one, oddly, because he has the other thing he's known for, and this was like a second thing for him, I'm kind mm-hmm. of more inclined to believe that one. He was acting in the New York uh, theatre scene all the time he was working in the porcelain factory and being a firefighter. Mm. I think Kate McKinnon is the bluff because I think the Ghostbusters ghostwriter link is a bit too neat. Okay, one vote for Kate. I'm going to go for uh, Johnny Depp. And what are you going for, Dan? I think that Kate McKinnon is too nice not to be true, so I'm also going Johnny Depp. I'm with Peter. Okay, so we have two votes for Kate McKinnon and one vote for Johnny Depp. I can tell you the bluff is Steve Buscemi. (laughs) In a recent interview with Colin Yost, who's engaged to Scarlett Johansson, he's an SNL regular, and he was also an SNL head writer. This is on the Goodreads website, and you can look it up. Um, He was asked about whether members of the cast read a lot, because it's about books, and he's releasing his biography. Mm. And he said, yeah, tons of them read a lot. Kate McKinnon actually ghostwrote a load of young adult fiction before she joined the cast. So that's the only information we have about it, but he's convinced that's true. Johnny Depp was a former ballpoint pen salesman until Nicolas Cage told him to give it a try. I have quotes. So Cage said, I was living in an old building in Hollywood called the Fontenoy, and I think he ultimately rented the apartment to Johnny and he started living there. It was the point of his career when he was selling pens or something to get by. He admitted it later. And then you have a few quotes from uh, Depp and people around Depp. Um, He basically said, it was acting, it was my acting training. I had to phone people up and you'd start with some bullshit like, hey, you're eligible for a holiday to Greece, or hey, you've just won this particular thing. And had to keep people on the line and talking to the point where they'd order a thousand pens with their company names on. So there we go. Mm. Steve Buscemi, to my knowledge, never worked uh, an enameling factory. I have no idea what his father did. I have actually stolen this origin story from a friend of mine who was a programmer. But there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's not up there with Batman, is it? <laughs> <laughs> it said he doesn't need an anomaly it needs a hero <laughs> feels like it could be a Springsteen song you know mm. someone who worked in the anomaly factory became a firefighter to spite his dad and ended up acting on the stage that would work right mm. yeah. yeah I'd listen to that <laughs> uh, okay I've got three random suggestions so let's see which of those are true and which are fabricated number one Lawrence of Arabia was partially filmed on sand dunes in Wales, standing in for the Sahara. Number two. The sound designers spent a week recording real military jets for Top Gun, but felt they wanted more power, so they used NASA recordings for the launch of Apollo 13. And for the third one. At one point, Batman Returns had a different vision of Robin, as a black mechanic who helps Bruce out when he crashes the Batmobile. Which is the lie. Hmm... The Robin one sounds like a very not obvious thing for Robin to be being a mechanic, but Tim Burton didn't really adhere strictly to comic book lore anyway, maybe? So Robin was originally going to be in Batman Returns? Yeah. And then they figured there were a stupid number of characters and they wouldn't make that mm-hmm. mistake with the Batman movie, so they moved Robin onto the third one. I remember being at school around the time Batman Returns was being developed and there was a rumour going round that Will Smith was going to be Robin in the Batman movie. Now, I looked this up years later and found it was false. There was, it was never in the offing. So I'm intrigued. Did you two go to school together? <laughs> no, we did not. This is the world's longest film bluff. It's been going on for like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> Filming on sand dunes in Wales, I can imagine that. 
like pick up you know pick up shots of certain things yeah it's far easier than going back out all you need is sand a low camera as long as the sky is fairly clear you can pretty much do that what was the other one again uh, the other was the Top Gun sounds, some of them being from the Apollo 13 rocket. Yeah, that's bollocks. Apollo 13, the one that famously ran into problems. Mm-hmm. So did it sound different to all the other Apollos? No, it's just the launch. one the recordings happened to come from. And obviously okay. it did launch successfully. Yeah. There is that bit where uh, Tom Cruise is flying in the last aerial battle. And as he goes just over um, Iceman, you can hear in the background, someone said, Houston, we've had a problem. You listen very carefully. <laughs> you know, lots of foley is different things, is, is things that are boosted or changed with, you yep. know, mm-hmm. sound woven into it. I'm going to go for the Batman one, the Batman Returns vision of Robin, even though I remember the rumor at the time, which is weird. There you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to go for the Top Gun being the bluff simply because I can't imagine that there would be such high quality recordings of the Apollo 13 launch that would be of the fidelity that they could be used in a movie without spending a fortune cleaning them up and so on. I am going to say the beaches of Wales were never included in Lawrence of Arabia. It was all authentic. It was all 100% genuine. I'm sure of it. Don't make me wrong, Peter. Don't make me wrong. (laughs) Well, sadly for Dan. Oh. (laughs) um, Yes, they did film some of it in Wales. Lawrence of Arabia was actually born in Wales. But they filmed some stuff in Methyl Moor in Bridgend, which hosts the second highest sand dunes in Europe, apparently. And at one point, Batman Returns did have a different vision of Robin as a black mechanic who helps Bruce out when he crashed the Batmobile. Marlon Wayans was cast in the role. Oh, fuck no. No. <laughs> I really, really hope the multiverse is proven wrong because I do not want to live in somewhere where there's even an alternate universe where Marlon Wayans is robbing in a fucking Batman film. You're a fan then, John. <laughs> they even got the stage of giving him a costume fitting, but they decided there were too many characters and they bumped Robin into Batman 3 and then obviously Burton lost the gig and it became Schumacher. So they went a different direction. Can I clarify my rant with Marlon Wayans? Sure. Yeah, Marlon Wayans is in Requiem for a Dream and he's amazing in that. And he's actually a really good, serious actor, but he's just a terrible, terrible comedian. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The bluff was Top Gun. They felt there wasn't enough sort of bite in the sounds and they want to give more character and personality. So what they did is mix in animal roars to the different jets for different characters so that they would have a different characteristic sound. Does Goose's plane have the goose? <laughs> should, it? So, you uh, know, <laughs> punch it, Maverick. Honk. Perhaps Iceman could be penguin noises. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Got a bogey. Honk. So moving on, we have another question from one of our lovely listeners. This is from Pablo Bonzo of the Pablo's Vault of Horror podcast. Pablo asks... If we were to recast the X-Men for their eventual Marvel Cinematic Universe debut, how would you introduce them? Mm. That's two very interesting questions because there's the idea of how you bring the X-Men as a thing into the MCU and then you've got to cast uh, actors in the parts. But as that question was being asked, it looked like Ian's brain lit up with a giant Cerebro-esque <laughs> uh, glow. So I think he might have some ideas. So the story you choose to tell with the X-Men, 
is it really changes how you treat them and what you do with them. And I'm not sure there is a plan in the MCU yet, but the idea of mutation needs to be seeded in the MCU. Because going back to like the 2000s films, I, I think they were very successful in introducing mutation as something which is kind of terrifying. You don't want it happening to you. That was a discrete universe where no other superpowers existed. In the MCU, you were com- you know, if you live in New York, you see people flying overhead all the time and swinging around. So it can feel like something that's quite attractive. They really need to set up the idea that this is different to that, that this is something you don't want to happen. I can imagine seeding the MCU movies with villains, henchmen, mutants that are definitely bad, Easter egging the idea throughout the next phase of the MCU. So if someone's saying the mutation, yeah, if I woke up and I was Captain America, that wouldn't be so bad. Like, nah, it's not like that. You'll wake up and your blood is poison. Or you'll wake up and look at your mother and kill her by accident. You know, something that's truly a thing to be feared. Because the X-Men being the idea of humans in the world who are hated and feared just because of what they are absolutely has to be front and centre. But I think it's got to be slow. You've really got to build up this idea of it being terrifying. Does it need an inciting incident to explain why people haven't been mutating up to this point? Because the MCU's been going for a long time, presumably with no notable mutants. I mean, kind of, but if vampires turned up, you wouldn't question why we hadn't talked about vampires before. You know what I mean? If it's like this tiny, Mm. tiny proportion of the population, it's already a myth and legend. I mean, Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are technically mutants. The the Fox mutants, the X-Men and their spin-offs, They've only used a very narrow slice of like the X-Men mythos. It's largely centered on uh, kind of 80s, 90s Marvel. Given hundreds and hundreds of mutants, the fact they've kind of recast the main cast once is just bizarre to me. I'm hoping we get a very, very different slice. And I'm hoping it doesn't focus on Wolverine. Mm. It completely disjoints both the character and the universe if you make him the center of it. You should be scared of Wolverine. Wolverine isn't a nice guy. You shouldn't think he is. Wolverine's a killer. He's got blood on his hands. And I don't think you ever quite got that with Hugh Jackman because he was so fundamentally likeable. Oh, he's he's a dangerous man. He's he's the greatest showman. And the show is your death. You see... (laughs) The fact that he comes from musical (laughs) theatre and can go on to be a musical theatre lead, I think kind of sells the problem. Hugh Jackman as Wolverine is one of the most closely linked actor-to-part dualities in all of superheroes. You don't see Christian Bale, and you might think of Batman, but he's not that closely linked. You've got American Psycho, you've got other things he's done. Mm. Many, many years ago, I heard a story about... Bob Hoskins playing Wolverine, which seems to me would have actually been really good casting him perhaps a lot closer to the, the comic book character. If you take Bob Hoskins out of like The Long Good Friday and, and you know, to be honest, bulk him up a little bit, there's an aggression in that man. You can buy the idea that that guy kills people. And I think that's kind of like the interesting thing. Weirdly, this is the bit of casting I think I've got set in my head, almost no matter what story you do. And the name is... Paul Rubens. Pee-wee Herman. Uh, <laughs> Pee-wee Herman. It's uh, Wes Chatham. He's the guy who plays Amos in The Expanse and he's caster in The Hunger Games. Amos in The Expanse is a borderline psychopath with a heart. He's got crazy eyes. He's terrifying. He's grown up in violence and you can see it on him. But he has this 
sense of humanity. He looks legitimately dangerous. And I could absolutely buy him as this guy who adults are like terrified of, but occasionally kids see through it and kind of warm to him. It really depends where you go. I wouldn't want to concentrate on Wolverine. I'd want to tell one of the different stories. I'd love if like the, you know, if the school for mutants really dealt with the oddballs and freaks, the kind of new mutant era, which are characters you may not be that familiar with. They're unusual looking oddities. It's like taking freaks and geeks and making them mutants and putting them at school. If you're going the school route, that's the way I'd go. Yeah, I read a an X-Men comic fairly recently. One of the characters, he's, you can see his eyes and his teeth, but he's just like translucent otherwise. And I think he was called Glob or something like that, yeah. but he freaked me out. <laughs> uh, I'd like to not see him in any film or any medium ever again, please. Glob is actually living paraffin, and at one point he gets set on fire and runs around <laughs> saying, I am the Inhuman Torch. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we've had the X-Men film series, we've had so many over the last few years, um, and I could potentially see Marvel not doing an X-Men film for the foreseeable future, but instead cherry-picking some of the characters and integrating them into the MCU while soft-peddling the mutant things to some extent. So I could see Wolverine appearing in a MCU film because they've already got this universe built up where there are no mutants and it's a pretty busy universe already with the Earth-based stuff and the galactic stuff and also now, you know, the time travel stuff. So I, I can see them not wanting to put a whole other mythology in there. on top of this. I thought that as well, John. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Storm has a connection to T'Challa and Black Panther, and you mm-hmm. could bring Storm in through the Black Panther sequel, mm-hmm. potentially. Absolutely. I kind of want to see the villains. Whenever you see whoever the villain of Black Panther is, is henchman, why can't you pull from the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants or one of the many yeah. mutant mercenaries who are knocking around? Establish them as threats, establish them as something mm-hmm. horrid, then subvert it. I would love to see the um, X-Men High, I would call it. That to me, that feels like a TV series rather than a film. To give a lot more time to develop the characters. Kind of like, you know, if you imagine like Buffy almost, a Buffy type series. Mm. Uh, should, we, mm. should we cast some X-Men then? Janelle Monet has put her name down for Storm, hasn't she? Yeah, that would be great. She's getting really good reviews for Antebellum. The possible horror, mm-hmm. possible thriller film, possible time travel we don't know much about it, but there has been a trailer. Yeah. She's supposed to be great in that. So, yeah, go for it. What I like about the MCU and casting is it's always surprising. It's never completely what you think it's going to be. They don't mm-hmm. always go for the obvious choice. And the fact they've done things with Eternals like cast deaf actors would make me think that maybe an actor who is a wheelchair user might get a chance to play Professor X. Mm-hmm. And we get people that we haven't necessarily heard of play some of these iconic characters and become superstars like the Hemsworths, like the Chris Pratt's did by the characters rather than casting a big name. Marvel do make stars, don't cast them. That's generally like what they've done. They've elevated the, uh, the cast they've chosen. They cast stars in villain roles, don't they? Yeah, more so, definitely. Because even Chris Evans wasn't a huge name before Captain America, was he? No. Scarlett Johansson, maybe? But again, Scarlett Johansson was more of an indie film star. I'm not sure she was a mainstream Hollywood name pre-Iron Man 2. I was looking at possible X-Men MCU casts online. 
Some of the ones that stood out for me that were quite interesting were uh, Jubilee, played by Aquafina, which if you've seen Aquafina in anything, she's got, again, loads of charisma. She's great in Jumanji The Next Level. She's great in Crazy Rich Asians. I watched The Farewell a few days ago. She's excellent in that. I also saw John Krasinski as Cyclops. That could work, yeah. I saw Denzel Washington as Magneto, which initially I thought, hmm. And then I thought, oh, actually, I'd quite like to see that. And this fan casting paired him up with David Oyelowo as Professor X. And the more I started to think about it, one of them's played Martin Luther King, one's played Malcolm X. And those (laughs) two very different approaches to that same civil rights, discrimination issues Mm -hmm. that are so important to X-Men in various ways. I'm all for Denzel as Magneto now. Have they not explicitly talked about uh, Magneto and Professor X as Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in the past? It's directly referenced in the first film. Mm -hmm. We're going to fight them by any means possible. It's like, by any means possible, is a uh, Malcolm X quote. And the conflicting ideologies was the pitch to Brian Singer, apparently. Mm. They're presumably going to have to update Magneto's origin story, aren't they? Yeah, he'd have to be in his mid-80s now, wouldn't he? What age do you think they'd tend to be casting people at? I think they'd cast him young because they'd hope to use them for years. Are they the teachers or are they the students? Stranger Things and Harry Potter has proven you can cast young and see these people develop into stars. You know what I mean? It's, it's a risk, but it's doable. I wouldn't be surprised if you start even with Morlocks. You know, if you're a mutant, you run and you hide. And you stay underground because you'll be hunted out and found. And it's this community who live in the shadows. Having mutation feared, if you go above ground, a giant robot will fly overhead, find you and kill you. Is a huge, dramatic start to a thing. Captain America is sadly retired with Peggy Carter somewhere. What would he think about that? We know he'd end up on the side of good, but he's having like General Ross and everyone else saying, these are a threat to America. These are a threat to our way of life. But, The success of the kind of Fox movies proves that it's an idea that stands on its own. You know what I mean? You may dilute it in a world full of wonders and magic and robot suits. It may not quite have the same punch, but I'm I'm intrigued to see if they can pull it off. So what other fantasy castings did you find online, Don? There are lots of different suggestions for Storm particularly. Gugu and Bathoro was mentioned which if you've watched the morning show, she's fantastic in that. I'm happy for her to be cast in any Marvel film. We had Hayley Steinfeld as Rogue. I would potentially go more for the Maya Hawke option for Rogue, just to get Maya Hawke in there, because she's one of these up-and-coming actors who could become a star. She was fantastic in Stranger Things, and getting attached to a big superhero project could... Hemsworth, uh, as it were. Uh, I saw Nick Offerman as Beast. Mm, That's good. Which I quite like. Mm. Lakeith Stanfield as Nightcrawler. Um, Lakeith Stanfield, uh, main actor in Sorry to Bother You. Uh, He's in Mm. Get Out, Selma, uh, Knives Out, things like that. I thought Alan Cumming was brilliant in X2 as Nightcrawler. But I think Lakeith Stanfield's got that kind of energy about him that would really fit what I know of that character. Davy J- Diggs. <laughs> Davy Diggs in anything. Cast him in anything. Um, absolutely. Um, and another couple that I made up myself. Uh, John Cena as Colossus could be fun. 
He's kind of got the bulk and the body for it. And if they do cross over with the wider MCU, Dave Bautista as Drax, John Cena as Colossus, reenact WrestleMania 26, and you're set. I have to say my favourite one is Denzel as Magneto. I think that is inspired. But Wyatt Russell, son of Kurt, as Wolverine. Mm. Mm. What have I seen him in? He was in an episode of Black Mirror. Game Playtest, I think it was called. Right. You might recognise him if you see him. Because he looks like Kurt Russell. What else has Wyatt Russell been in? Uh, he is in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Oh, is he? Oh, he's been oh, taken. He's, he's oh, he's... Uh, that's right, he's a US agent. You missed your chance, Wyatt Russell. You could have been Wolverine. Snicked. He's, he's possibly the Republican Captain America. We'll see how that goes. <sighs> Kurt Russell, 30 years ago, would have been great as Wolverine. Mm. 30 years ago, you're probably looking at Kevin Bacon as Cyclops and uh, Mel Gibson as Wolverine in a very different movie. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you want to make Wolverine less likeable, Cassie <laughs> Mel Gibson would be one way of doing that. Just got really dark. I think, like, if you had Mel Gibson as Wolverine, he just wouldn't believe Magneto's origin story, would he? <laughs> no, never happened. <laughs> Where's the proof? Oh, no. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> Long-time listeners to the podcast might remember a couple of years ago, I was made to delve into John's sack of fun and watch the Nicolas Cage movie next. I have long awaited the time for my revenge, but that time is now at hand, and I have coerced John into watching a film from the sack of fun. John, how was it? It was both painful... (laughs) And incredibly dull. <laughs> it was kind of like a mild toothache of an experience. <laughs> I watched a film called Money Plane, which I was sold on the basis of a very, very nice 20-second clip that Dan sent to me on Twitter, which involved Kelsey Grammer saying, Where do you want to bet on a dude fucking an alligator? Money Plane. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a film for me. <laughs> Sadly not. Um, it's a film directed by Andrew Lawrence, written by Andrew Lawrence and co-starring Andrew Lawrence in the directorial debut of Andrew Lawrence, whose claim to fame seems to be that his brother, who is also in the film, was a semi-regular on a TV series called Blossom, which oh, I've right. not had yeah. there. Jo- oh, is it Jerry Lawrence, is it? And there's also there's a third Lawrence brother who also appears in there underneath an entirely unconvincing stick-on moustache. What is the plot of this great film? Please. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) So the film stars Adam Copeland, who is better known to WWE fans as The Edge. He's just Edge. He's not The Edge. He doesn't have the the. Louise thought for a while we were going to watch a film featuring the guitarist from U2. (laughs) Um, I was very disappointed to realise it was Edge. You'd have been more disappointed if it had been him in Mm -hmm. it. So we open with Edge Robin an art gallery. Now, this is a sort of art gallery that you can tell it's an art gallery because it has a sign stuck on the door saying art gallery and appears to consist of a room with three paintings in it. Mm. And he has been hired with his team to steal a painting worth $40 million called The Ugly Duckling. He breaks in using an elaborate method of a card and saying, hello, I belong in this art gallery and walking in there. Only to find that although the CCTV feed shows the painting, once he goes in there, the painting is gone. 
is being set up da, da, da. after he escapes from the art gallery in a shootout, which Valey's only redeeming feature is that they are clearly firing blanks from their guns and couldn't be bothered to put real gun sound effects over the blanks, so just left them as is. He is called to the home of uh, the character played by Kelsey Grammer, who refers to himself by some elaborate name, but is also known as The Rumble. So he goes... I'm Clarence Clearwater, even Drew the Third, but you can call me the Rumble. <laughs> it's about as scary as a, a kitten. But he's having fun. Kelsey Grammer chews up the scenery, and Kelsey Grammer is literally the only redeeming feature in the whole thing. Kelsey Grammer, the Rumble, has purchased some debt that Adam Copeland has somehow got himself into. So he owes somebody $40 million. It's not made clear why. But apparently there's some bad people. And Kelsey Grammer somehow works as, you know, those debt reconciliation services you see advertised on daytime TV, where it's like if you've got a bank loan and a credit card loan and you owe some money and you can't look thing, why not collate all those debts and we'll buy all those debts and then you'll just owe us a shitload of money rather than owing somebody else less. But basically he's the gangster equivalent of that, which means he now owns Edge. Where does the money plane come into it? Because he didn't get the painting for Kelsey Grammer, Kelsey has another task for him, one last job, and that is to rob a money plane. Now, what we understand from this is that nobody in the film understands the internet because the money plane contains a billion dollars in cryptocurrency, <laughs> which they have to go onto the money plane to hijack. So this is this is the theme for the thing. The Edge doesn't understand how anything works. The Edge has like a, a, a catchphrase, which is, it takes more than one flame to start a fire. The Edge doesn't even understand how fire works. <laughs> so the money plane, and this sounds really exciting, doesn't it? The money plane, it's like con air for the noise. The money plane is a plane that flies over international water where anything is legal and where all the world's greatest criminals, arms dealers, all gather on the money plane and they can bet on anything and to make sure that he does this kelsey grammar shows a photo of adam copeland's wife and child because it would be awful if anything happened to them wouldn't it oh yes he could have just downloaded a photo from facebook there's no evidence that he actually has a wife or child and he doesn't because then edge goes home to his wife who is played by denise richards you would think maybe she's going to have some big action sequence near the end. Maybe the fact that they've hired one of the three recognisable names in the film to play his wife, who is under threat from Kelsey Grammer, suggests that at some point these threads are going to tie together and she's going to come in danger in some exciting way and she's going to come as... No. No, she's just... <laughs> maybe she was just a big fan of Blossom. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, yeah. What kind of budget level is this film at, John? Like, did, did, paint... Paint a picture for me. About 50 pence. I haven't actually got to the money plane yet, have I? Um, the third recognisable name in the film is Thomas Jane, the Punisher himself, who is the godfather to Edge's daughter. And you know this because his second line of dialogue is, hey, why the hell did you make me godfather to your daughter in the first place anyway? Hey. <laughs> he also sets up that Edge perhaps has a gambling problem. That perhaps he was a professional poker player, but lost a lot of money. And it might be quite stressful for him, having had some horrible gambling experiences in the past. So again, that's quite an exciting setup, isn't it? Never mention again, mate. Never mention again. <laughs> no. So can you give an example of the kind of things you can gamble on on a plane that you can't gamble on anywhere else? 
Does he go, right, what would you like to gamble on? Oh, I don't know, about like two dudes and which one kills each other. Like, yeah, I'm sorry, we can't arrange that, we're on a plane. <laughs> I, just don't, I just don't quite get the logistics of this situation. Do I, do I email in my suggestions? I don't know. Well, you get to the money plane itself and it just looks like an easy jet plane to somewhere, but with all these gangsters on. And you've got this, you know, the money plane, a dude could fucking alligator. No, or you could play poker for 10 minutes to try and make the film up to a in time. On an easy jet plane, you can actually gamble on anything. You I can. gambled on whether the bacon sandwich was hot. It wasn't. High stakes. <laughs> I lost £10,000. <laughs> yeah, so they, they play a game of poker, and then they play a game of Russian roulette, not with a toy gun that fires hippo feet out, sadly. And then they go to the themed rooms. They build this up, they have a big speech, like the guy who runs the money play goes, these are our most popular things, the themed rooms where anything can happen. And do you know what you do in the themed room? You go and you sit on a chair and they pass you a little tablet TV screen. There's a man with a cobra and two men in a kitchen for no reason, one of whom attacks the other. And they bet on how long these things will take to happen. So nothing actually happens on the plane. <laughs> this is the thing. They're sat watching these things on fucking iPads. There's a big TV on the side of the wall showing these events with a little thing in the corner saying, money plane. But yet for some reason, they're watching the exact same things on small tablets that they're past. It makes no sense whatsoever. They keep going, oh, you won a million dollars. You won another $2 million. And then at the same time, The Edge and his friends are hijacking the plane with a view to stealing some cryptocurrency. Are they just downloading it? What are they doing? I think they downloaded it onto a USB stick might be the suggestion. Excellent. I'm starting to realise why Edge went back to wrestling this year. There's also a vault with some real money in it. A vault is not a very sensible thing to put on a plane. Oh, they're quite heavy, aren't they? <laughs> a big proper old school iron vault full of money. And they hijack the plane and nothing really goes wrong. Edge has a weird fight with the pilots and then goes into the cockpit and forgets there'd be a co-pilot there, so has another fight. And all the, the, the fights are just filmed at double speed for some reason to try and make this slightly old arthritic wrestler look like he can still move. So what do you think this film wanted to be? I don't like, know. I can, I can imagine a kind of executive decision meets Saw. You know, like, so it's a mm. kind of heist on a plane with a horror violency element and something a bit edgy to it. I should mention the film's only 82 minutes long with credits. Because no one wanted to be in the credits. <sighs> wow. But it felt a, a lot longer. I can actually reveal, John, that an international cadre of criminals has been gambling <laughs> on whether you'd managed to sit through money playing. I'm surprised they won. Um, like they've they've won they've won approximately ten million dollars, and I have to have my arm chopped off. So there we go. <laughs> Thanks, John. If you give me ten million dollars, I would not watch this film again. It was just dull. There was just no tension, and to have what clearly is quite a good idea, but then just to absolutely do nothing with it. Which part is the good idea? Sorry, I don't like the plane flying above international waters to watch videos. I, I don't get it. If you watch the little clip that Dan sent of Kelsey Grammer, you could, in an alternate universe, imagine a grindhouse kind of film. There's, there's an idea in there somewhere. But I'm like, where's the dude fucking the alligator? No dude, no alligator gets fucked. 
And for that, John, I can only say I'm really sorry I <laughs> made you watch it and you never have to go in the sack of fun again. I'm sorry. I did um, tweet Skybets and asked what odds they would give me on a dude fucking an alligator and they haven't replied to me yet. I can't <laughs> imagine why. <laughs> and if you check our Twitter feed, I genuinely did that. Do you think you're the first person to do that? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> Just There can't be many people who watch the film. I must be the only one. That clip that... Dan sent me, has that gone viral in any way? or That's how I saw it, yes. I was not seeking out money playing content. So they've managed to find a little 20-second clip of Hammy Kelsey Grammer making this film seem like fun rather than an endurance test, which it is. So how many alligators get fucked out of ten? None. It's oh. a zero. <laughs> <laughs> That's good for the alligators. I, I'm going <laughs> to give the film one out of ten because Kelsey Grammer is quite fun in it. Podcast listeners... You might think this sounds so terrible, it might be fun, and I might go and watch this based on this review. Just don't, please. It's not fun. It's not entertaining. <laughs> it's going to be a constant pain in my brain for the rest of my existence. <laughs> it's like a hospital waiting room of a movie without <laughs> good or bad news at the end of it. I just like the idea that one day you may be sitting down and accidentally remember it. <laughs> yeah. it just, you know, <laughs> it like hits you like um, like you're taking heroin in Requiem for a Dream or something. <laughs> Your pupils dilate and you see Kelsey Grammer and a table with people playing poker and nothing really happening. You know, like when people get old and sometimes their mental faculties go, but they can only remember things from their youth. If I'm like in a nursing home at fucking 95 years old, Dan, and the only thing I can remember is the money played. I like, <laughs> like my, Louise comes to visit me and she goes, are you okay, John? I'm like, we need to bet on whether the cobra will bite the man or not. Then <laughs> I blame you entirely. I take all responsibility. What I like about this is, it doesn't sound like Dan actually recommended it to you. He just sort of did it. so that's the end of the episode Uh, if you've enjoyed it please tweet us facebook us you can find us on instagram possibly we might be on myspace (laughs) you'll find us on a plane in international waters (laughs) gambling on things we're watching on ipads yeah. Give us a like, send us a tweet, um, give us some more questions because we really enjoy getting those. And John, what you, what you going to do for anyone who sends us a really good question? I am going to send them a video of me being bit by a cobra and let them guess how long it takes me to die. <laughs> <laughs> Not for any reason other than it's preferable to watch it yeah. again. <laughs> uh, but in the meantime, you have been listening to... A man who's thinking far too much about the MCU right now. A man who's going to order a McClunky, now the pubs are open. A man who's going to go shoot an epic in a desert somewhere. And a dude who did once fuck an alligator for a bet. We'll see you next time. Bye! Bye! Bye.